0: I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. On deck for today, we have one, people hating my second novel. Two, when I tried to kayak a creek that no one had ever kayaked before. Three, the best thing I've read this week. 4. A geeky correction poem titled, Symbolo de los Apostoles. 5. My Pop Vices. And 6. A dedication and a message from a Colorado river toad. When I first married Jenny, she was the caregiver of of her great aunt Ruth, who was 92 years old. She used to stay with her for 24 hours every Friday. So I would stay with Jenny and Annie Ruth and I got to know Aunt Ruth pretty well. She was hilarious. We would play cards, we'd play poker and she'd always take all my money. I never beat her a single time. But she was pretty housebound. And she lived in an elderly trailer park across this lake from kind of a wealthy subdivision. So this lake was surrounded by houses on both sides, houses really on one side and trailers on the other. And I always told Annie Ruth that I would entertain everybody by releasing South American black caiman on the lake And then especially the elderly people would talk about the lake monsters not knowing what was eating all the geese and the ducks, coming up on land in the dark and scaring people. Unfortunately, I never did release Cayman on that lake. So, in my second novel, this is the part where you laugh. My main character, Travis, who's living with his dying grandmother in that same trailer park on that same lake in Eugene, Oregon. He releases two black caiman right at the start of the novel to get things going, to keep people entertained. So while I never did it in real life, I got to do that action through my character, which is kind of a fun thing about being an author. And that novel did all right. Some people really loved it got starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and a few others. And the American Library Association named it one of the best books of 2016. But Travis is dealing with his mother's heroin addiction and he's incredibly sad about his grandmother dying and he's not getting along with his grandfather very well and he's struggling at school and in so many ways, it's sort of a dark book with dark themes, and... Also, his friend Malik is writing dirty love letters to dead Russian princesses, so it's kind of a weird narrative, and there's multiple narrators, and it jumps around, and some people just really didn't like it. So I got some reviews like this. Tara from Florida simply wrote, did not like it, one star. But Lara. Another reader was more specific. She put the hashtag abandoned next to her review and wrote, Eek, second book abandoned at 50 pages in two days. I might just not be in the mood for this one, but okay. So something about the title and the description make it sound like it might be somewhat humorous. It's not at all. Instead, it just feels dark and sad but without any actual emotion, if that makes sense. I haven't been able to get a feel for any of the characters so far, and the chapter titles and something about the writing remind me of Andrew Smith, only not nearly as compelling. Anthea, a different reader, wrote, Totally didn't get this book at all. There didn't seem to have a proper plot going on. Everything was all over the place, and nothing was explained in details. We don't get introduced to characters with substance. They just seem to pop out of nowhere without any proper rhyme or reason to it. What exactly was the premise of this book? I had no idea. And Christie wrote, Went from a three-star to a two-star after some reflection. Really don't like the main character, his reasoning for the Caymans, and his lack of remorse when things didn't go as planned, and the whole thing with, view spoiler if you want to, really pissed me off. Heh <laughs> heh. And the rage wasn't explained. On third thought, I'm knocking it down to a one-star review. ¶¶ 37 years old and therefore old enough to make good decisions, I decided I wanted to run the 14 and a half mile wilderness section of Whitechuse Creek. I'd been spending a lot of time on the creek, a tributary of the Deschutes River. My family and I fished and swam at the crossing, backpacked into Alder Springs Canyon on Whitechuse hiked all the way to the Confluence with the Deschutes. So we knew the lower sections pretty well, but I wanted to paddle the upper section, the 14 and a half miles that went through the rugged Wilderness Canyon, the section that I'd never heard anything about, a canyon that had zero trails, no humans hiked through there. It was just wild. So one day I was fly fishing just above the crossing and my daughters were swimming below me in the big pool and three kayakers came along with packs on their kayaks, pack kayaking and I thought, oh my gosh, they're doing it. And I was like, what are you guys doing? And they said, we're paddling all the way through. And in my mind, that meant that they'd started at the town of Sister's. We we're paddling all the way through to the Deschutes and the Confluence and then down to Lake Billy Chinook before the dam. So I was pretty excited. The thing is, I didn't really ask them where they'd started, which was a pretty key detail. Did they start in the campground 100 yards up, up Creek from me or did they start at the town many, many, many miles above and above the wilderness section. I didn't ask, they paddled away from me. And in my head I thought, it's doable. I guess you can paddle all the way through. So two weeks later, Jenny and I are back camping in that area, dry camping at the Sisters Boulders. And I tell her, since we're here for five days I wanna take one day and paddle the wilderness section of the creek. And I ask her if she wants to go with me. And she says, why don't you do it first? And if it's actually fun, I'll go do it with you again. And I said, okay, but you'll miss out on the first descent down the creek. She's like, that's okay. You go ahead and do it first. So Jenny drops me off on this country road, a rural highway. And there's this barbed-wired field between me and the creek. So I carry my kayak over the barbed wire and then my paddle and dry bag. I'm only wearing flip-flops, but it doesn't matter because I'm not gonna be hiking. I'm gonna be paddling all day. So I carry my kayak across the field over the other barbed wire and down to the creek then hike back and get my dry bag and my paddle, carry that across the field and over the barbed wire and down to the creek, and then I'm ready to just paddle for the rest of the day. So I get settled in my kayak, get my dry bag strapped in, pick up my paddle, scooch, slide into the water, and I say, this is like Lewis and Clark. No map. I don't know what's in front of me, just exploring this wilderness creek, and I feel elated. I'm so excited, and I'm just paddling gloriously down this little strait and around a turn till I run into a log jam, and I don't mean like a small log jam. I mean a log jam that goes all the way across the creek and is about 12 feet high, just bleached trees that have been there for what looks like hundreds of years since a gnarly flood forever ago and immediately I have to pull off because there's no way to paddle through under or over this log jam it's enormous so I screech to a halt and pull up on the gravel bottom of the side of the creek and I hop out of my kayak and I say okay well I'll just carry over this log jam and then The rest will be smooth paddling for the remainder of the day. So I carry my kayak over this enormous log jam in my flip flops and then I go back for my dry bag and my paddle. And I get all strapped in again and I slide into my kayak and I scooch and get back on the water and I'm so happy to be paddling again and I paddle all the way around the next turn until I run into another log jam. one's huge too like 50 little bleached trees all tangled together and I stop again and I carry my kayak over and I go back for my dry bag and my paddle and I get back in my kayak and I strap in and I paddle a little farther down to the next turn and around the turn and then there's another log jam and I get out again and I carry my kayak and I carry my dry bag and I carry my paddle over the log jam and I Get into my kayak again and I paddle maybe a hundred yards further and I run into another log jam. And another log jam and another log jam. And after a while I've carried over ten of these enormous log jams and then fifteen and then twenty. And I don't know if I'm carrying more or paddling more, but probably carrying more and my little paddling sections are very very short. And I just keep running into log jam after log jam after log jam. And I'm still in these barbed-wired fields in this flat section of the creek. I'm not quite to the wilderness section. And then I get to the head of the canyon where the rock narrows. And the wilderness section's right in front of me. And I look up and I see a house maybe a half mile up above me. And I think... I could carry my kayak and my dry bag and my paddle up to there. I could carry up to that house and probably find a long driveway and a road and I could figure out how to call for help or something. I don't know. Some way get back to camp. Or I could just paddle into the wilderness section and I look up at this house and I look down at the canyon where it narrows at the rock. But I'm an optimist. So I say, I mean, There can't be this many log jams in the wilderness section, right? It's probably because the creek was kind of flattened out and it was running through these flat fields. It's uh, not possible to have these kinds of log jams in the actual canyon section. So I decided to cross the Rubicon and paddle into the wilderness. And I wish I could say that I'd made the right choice that the log jams ended there, that the trees didn't carry into the canyon. But they did. And every 50 to 100 yards, there was another log jam and I kept carrying in my flip flops. And the only real change is that in the canyon, it was so narrow that the alders hung right over the creek. And there were a lot of black flies that day. And in the alders were orb weave spiders. And in the wilderness section, the spiders kept dropping onto me. And I don't know if they were actually hunting the flies on me, which is what I was thinking at the time, but I was getting pretty tired. They might have just been brushed off and landed on me. So I was picking black flies off of me and giant orb weave spiders off of me all the time. Hundreds of flies and dozens of spiders. And I was still carrying over log jams. 20, 30, 40, 50, I was counting. And after about 50 log jams, 50 something, my left flip-flop broke on a carry. So then I was just carrying in one shoe, right flip-flop on, left foot barefoot. And then after a few more log jams, my right flip-flop broke. And then I was barefoot. And I was going over these log jams. And really my feet were exposed either way, but I started to think about how many rattlesnakes were in this canyon. I'd seen so many rattlesnakes over the years on White Juice Creek. And I was nervous carrying my kayak barefoot over a log jam and then going back from my dry bag and my paddle, going over this log jam knowing that at any moment I could step next to a rattlesnake and it would strike my bare feet or my ankle or my calf, my lower leg. And I was really not in a great position and I was a couple miles into this canyon and I was getting pretty exhausted. And for some reason, this is the first time in years that I had forgotten to bring my survival kit with things like duct tape. So I could make duct tape and T-shirt shoes or something like that. So I was getting sunburned and exhausted, paddling very short sections and carrying over enormous log jams barefoot. And I kept scratching up my bare feet. And I was just destroyed but I kept going because I was in this canyon and what else could I do and I kept having to cross left to right or right to left to find easier ways over these log jams in this narrow canyon with the rock walls so close on both sides of the creek And there were also wild roses growing all along the margins and the alders so I had to be careful Not to lacerate my feet too badly, but I did a little bit anyway, and my feet were bleeding. And I kept carrying my kayak and my dry bag and my paddle. Then I started to think about takeout time and how I told Jenny that I thought it would take me three or four hours to paddle the creek. She was going to be waiting at the swimming hole at the crossing below, and I'd already passed that time. And I was worried, I was stressed, I was exhausted. And I started to think, she's gonna think I went over waterfalls or hit my head or something like that. She's gonna think I'm in serious trouble and call search and rescue. So I kept paddling and carrying and paddling and carrying and paddling and carrying and picking orb weave spiders off my face and shoulders and arms and legs picking black flies off, and I was just suffering. And I didn't have my survival kit, and my bare feet were cut up. And I realized it was going to take days to get through this canyon. Not hours, but days. And after about 100 log jams, 100 and something, I pulled over to the side of the creek, and I made a decision. I decided I was going to abandon my kayak. There was nothing else I could do. I was going to abandon my kayak, stop trying to paddle this totally unpaddleable creek, and I was going to hike out. But again, I'm an optimist. So when I thought about it, mapless, survival kitless, duct tapeless, I thought, I'm probably only a mile away from the crossing. Can't be further than that, right? Can't be too far away from the end of this insane creek canyon. So if I just hike one mile barefoot, I'll get out of here. I'll get to Jenny. I'll be late, but she won't have called search and rescue yet. She won't be too worried. It'll be okay. There's some daylight left. So I started hiking barefoot. I took the water that I had left and some food and put them in my pockets. I started hiking along the creek, but it was rugged. And I had to cross the creek over and over and over when the walls narrowed so much that they overhung on the left or on the right. And each time I crossed the creek, I thought, I don't want to tear my ACL or break an ankle hiking through this creek and stepping on a rock that I can't see and the sun was going down and it was getting dark and the angle on the water made it that I couldn't see below the surface anymore. It was just black and so I was hiking so slowly across each time. And I came through some wild roses and cut up both of my feet and they were bleeding. And I stepped up on one side of the creek and almost stepped on a rattlesnake. And I jumped when it rattled, jumped to the side And I was so tired and sunburned and dehydrated and hot and all that that I just stood there and thanked the rattlesnake for not biting me. And I stepped on ponderosa pine cones that jabbed through my feet and pine needles that I had to pick out and more wild roses that cut up my feet and I saw a large western fence lizard and I talked to him for a little while and I was going absolutely crazy trying to hike out of this creek canyon. And I'm hiking along and the walls are so steep I can't get out, I just have to keep going through. But it couldn't be more than a mile or two, but it was more than a mile or two. And I kept hiking one hour and two hours and my feet were bleeding. I was in so much pain. And then I was hiking three miles and four. And I kept hiking, and it was starting to get dark. And I found a gully that I could get up, but I couldn't get all the way to the mesa top. And kept hiking, and I dropped down to the creek and crossed it again and cut my feet again. And I was going absolutely insane, and I was starting to talk to birds in the evening. And my feet were bleeding. And then I finally found a gully that I could hike all the way up. And I got to a little outcrop of rock where I thought I could see, and it was so far ahead of me. I had five miles and six, and it started to get dark. And after seven miles, I finally came over out of the opening of the canyon at the bottom and got to the crossing. When I got down there, there was a note from Jenny, and she'd gone for help. She'd gone to call the sheriff's department, search and rescue, and there was a chair and a towel, something to eat and drink. She said she was sorry, and she hoped I was okay. And I put the chair in the creek, and I sat down and I soaked my bleeding and swollen feet. I might have cried a little bit, I might not have, I don't know. And I fell asleep with my feet in the water. And a while later, Jenny drove down in our Jeep with the sheriff in the passenger seat because his police cruiser couldn't get all the way to the rugged creek crossing. And I woke up to their lights shining on my face. I love the Japanese novelist Haruki Murakami, but I'd never read any of his interviews or nonfiction essays. So recently, I read his memoir, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And in this memoir, Murakami is juxtaposing his marathon training and running habit with his daily practice of riding. And as a teacher, this section right here really resonated with me. He writes, That's why I've never recommended running to others. I've tried my best never to say something like, running is great, everybody should try it. If some people have an interest in long distance running, just leave them be and they'll start running on their own. If they're not interested in it, no amount of persuasion will make any difference. Marathon running is not a sport for everyone, just as being a novelist isn't a job for everyone. Nobody ever recommended or even desired that I be a novelist. In fact, some tried to stop me. I had the idea to be one, and that's what I did. Likewise, a person doesn't become a runner because someone recommends it. People basically become runners because they're meant to. Still, Some might read this book and say, hey, I'm going to give running a try and then discover they enjoy it. And of course, that would be a beautiful thing. As the author of this book, I'd be very pleased if that happened. But people have their own individual likes and dislikes. Some people are suited more for marathon running, some for golf, others for gambling. Whenever I see students in gym class all made to run a long distance, I feel sorry for them. Forcing people who have no desire to run, or who aren't physically fit enough, is a kind of pointless torture. I always want to advise teachers not to force all junior and senior high school students to run the same course. But I doubt anybody's going to listen to me. That's what schools are like. The most important thing we ever learn at school is the fact that the most important things can't be learned at school. This week I wrote a poem that serves as a sort of correction. From my simplified geeking out section from last week. It's titled, Symbolo de los Apostoles. Humans see in 40 frames per second, create frame fusion out of the world in front of us, literally like a movie, only movies are shot in 24 frames per second and human sight is not planar. So all of what I just told you is not exactly true. These are the lies of near science, of almost science, what I can research, on the internet. Truth. Human sight is a combination of input, beliefs, culture, and emotional state. So religious background can be as important as the retina or cornea, the optic nerve. Just as sunlight gets all the credit in photosynthesis, while chlorophyll is doing so much work. Watch a person kneel in the dark. Close her eyes. Whisper to the virgin. Stand and kneel once again. Creo en Dios. Padre, todo rosso Creador. Del cielo y de la tierra. Living in Oregon and being an author, I'm supposed to be a hipster, only loving obscure things that you've never heard of. But the honest truth is, I've got a ton of pop vices. I'm not very hipstery at all. I don't buy kombucha at Whole Foods. And honestly, give me any of Rihanna's slow love ballads. I love John Green's looking for Alaska. I love every time Dame Lillard crosses over, steps back or to the side, and takes a three from the logo. Honestly, I don't love Joy Harjo any less now that she's famous as the U.S. Poet Laureate. One of my absolute favorite things to do is to watch a Dave Chappelle comedy special on Netflix even though everybody else does too. And, I mean, what can I say? I've loved Star Wars my entire life. This episode is dedicated to Ben, the King Leroy, one of my best friends, but also one of the most interesting and devoted members of the publishing community, a man who started two publishing houses and who published my first novel, Graphic the Valley. So to Ben, I'm forever grateful. And last but not least, a story that leads to a personal message. When my family and I lived in Tucson, Arizona when I was six years old, we got a pair of puppies, Irish setters, and we named them CJ and Chadok. And in August of that year, when the monsoon rains came in and the cumulonimbus clouds dropped hail and copious amounts of water and the washes filled and everything spilled over, out came beetles and tarantulas and Colorado River toads and everything else that was estivating under the ground. And Colorado River toads, if you've never seen them, are like half the size of a basketball. And they're covered in this browny yellow snot that runs off the top of their head when they're wet during the monsoons. And the coyotes know to stay away from them, as do the hawks and the eagles. But our little puppies ran after them, chased them, and Chadok took one of these Colorado river toads in his mouth and carried it like a big fat piece of brown jello. Only the thing is that snot on their head is toxic. And Chadok got incredibly sick. And we took our little puppy to the vet and the vet said, well, I'm sorry, but this puppy will be dead within 24 hours. And had to be put down. I recently went back to Tucson. In the fall and I ran into a Colorado river toad. Not the same one. But one that looked similar. And that river toad said to me. You know. You should ask your listeners for five stars. And also ask them to recommend at least to one other person this week. The boring is a swear word podcast and my-